Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast where we hear from mothers who are artists and creators, sharing their joys and issues around trying to be a mother and continue to make art. Regular topics include mum guilt, identity, the day-to-day juggle, mental health and how children manifest in their art. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. I have a passion for mental wellness and a background in early childhood education. You can find links to my guests and topics they discuss in the show notes, along with music played, a link to follow the podcast on Instagram and how to get in touch. All music used on the podcast is done so with permission. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Bowendick people as the traditional custodians of the land and water which this podcast is recorded on and pays respects to the relationship the traditional owners have with the land and water, as well as acknowledging past, present and emerging elders. Welcome back to Season 2, 2022. My guest today is Kate Mildenhall, a writer, teacher and podcaster from Hurstbridge, Victoria, on Wurundjeri lands and a mum of two. Kate is the author of two novels, her debut novel Skylarking, released in 2016, and her most recent release, The Mother Fault, from 2020. Kate also co-hosts the First Time podcast with fellow author Catherine Collette about the first time you publish a book. She's currently working on her third novel as well as undertaking a PhD on creative process. Today we enjoy a lively and fun chat about failure, creating in a COVID world, judgment of mothers, how her mothering influences her writing, and why everyone should think like a 40-year-old woman. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on, Kate. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to chat to you. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. Let's share with the listeners uh, what your background is and what you create. Well, these days I am a writer. Um, so I've written a couple of books and my last one was called The Mother Fault. My first was called Skylarking. Um, and I'm currently working on my third book and just started a PhD because, you know, COVID times was like times to do crazy things, right? So I, <laughs> I'm doing that. So and, and beautifully at the moment um, I'm getting to do that you know, full-time in whatever kind of capacity being a full-time writer is um, what that looks like. I know it looks like really different things for different people, but that that's what I do. Beautiful. So um, can you share what your new book is going to be called or are you still working on a title for it? Still working on that one. And um, I've actually just been away for a week, which says lots of things, both about motherhood and guilt and Christmas and being an artist and um, to work on it because it's just been so crazy to try and um work on creative projects during homeschooling and the rest of it I'm over here in Melbourne and um and I've exploded the book I've 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 done something um quite radical with it so (laughs) so I'm just letting it simmer all the all the crazy things I've just done but um Yeah, but it's been really fun. I've been working on that for about a year because the mother fault came out last year in the midst of of lockdown. So um, yeah, so I've been I've been working away. Oh my goodness! So what's your PhD in? So the PhD is is it's really fun and exciting. It's at RMIT and it's practice based. So it means that I get to do 
my writing and I also am a podcaster. So I co-host the first time podcast, which is interviews with writers. Um, and a, a lot of just oversharing um, myself and my, my co-host Catherine about our general publishing journeys. And, but I get to include all of that. So I get to include the, my kind of interviewing and my obsession with creative process. Cause that's what I am utterly obsessed with. So I'm, and then my novel is kind of part of it as well. So it's a little bit different to a traditional kind of PhD. Um, so I'm looking really particularly at journaling and um, journaling the, the kind of creative process and how writers do their thing, how writers do oh, their yeah. process. That sounds really fun. Like it sounds like it's just it's just a part of what you're going to be doing anyway. So it's not going to be like a tremendous, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, hard to yeah. get into your life anyway, but it sounds quite doable. <laughs> yes. And, and like it's almost like it's given it a kind of a shape, all of the other work that I do. You know, sometimes um, when you're in a position and you can describe you know, oh, this is my writing, this is the podcast I do. It, it all kind of links, you know, mm. and having the PhD kind of around that goes, oh, yeah, this is really <laughs> validating to me because it's a serious thing that I'm doing. Yeah, um, and also just community. Yeah. yeah, You know, I, I think one of the things that happens when you're writing often and my in before I was a teacher, um, so I was really used to having lots of people around me and a big collaborator. And so I have often found the writing process to be quite lonely. Yeah. Um, and so even just having the system of the PhD and colleagues and supervisors and to be able to part, be part of that network already, like I'm only six months in, but it's, um, that's been mm. wonderful. Yeah. So it's really meeting that need that you, that creative space that you yeah. need to do stuff. That is yeah. cool. Also now yeah. the kids are really excited because they are like, oh my gosh, you're going to be a doctor one day. I'm like, yes, yes I am. <laughs> <laughs> so they're super pumped about that. <laughs> oh, little darling. Before we get to the kids, I know that was, you gave me a beautiful segue there, but I'm going to go take you back. Um, yeah. How did you, have you always been a writer or, you know, when you were no. teaching? No. No. So I, I was at school, like passionately into it, kind of wanted to be a writer, um, wrote lots, you know, at, at high school and um, did the writing anthology and won awards and things like that. And then uh, I wanted to do uh, this TAFE degree, RMIT writing and editing as uh, when I left, I went and talked to the careers teacher about it and um, apologies to people who've heard this story, if any of your listeners had, because I have told it so many times, but the TAFE, the careers teacher said, Kate, uh, smart girls don't do TAFE and basically said, don't do that course. And I was oh. like, oh, right. And, you know, not having, not having kind of much gall of my own at that stage, I went off and did something else, which I promptly dropped out of, you know, after a year and went off traveling. But I went back and did that 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 course eventually which is the the delightful thing but no so I went and traveled for a while then I went back to uni and did teaching and at that time I kind of I was writing a little bit like journaling a lot but writing a little bit and I I put something in for a competition and I didn't get anything didn't didn't get anything at all and after all of these years of like you know winning things or getting commended in them it was such a rude shock to me. I mean, I laugh at it now. I tell this story to students because, and they, they have a laugh at my expense, but I just 
I saw it as a huge failure and rejection. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't write. I'm not going to write. And so I stopped. So oh. I stopped for like all of these years and I taught and, you know, I was passionate about reading and about teaching writing and, but I just, I, I, other than my journal, I don't think that I wrote anything during all of those years. And then, um, it was actually when my firstborn arrived that I, um, felt compelled to write again. So, yeah. yeah so I, I, writing wasn't, I never thought that I could be a writer when I grew up or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that was a crazy outlandish kind of a thought. Mm. It's um, really interesting. You say about that validation that you put that entry in and it, it didn't get anything. And then that defines how you feel about your creativity. I had a similar experience years ago because I used to do, um, in a, we had to do a Steadfords when we were part of this group and I was used to doing pretty well. Um, and then I went in this larger competition and didn't even place. And so I stopped performing because I went, oh, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Oh, yes. You know, and for years I let that define me, that I wasn't, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. So I just went, yeah. well, I mustn't be very good anymore. Isn't it? Like, it's how do we it's do ridiculous. That? I know. Yeah. And, and heartbreaking. And often when I'm talking about it with other writers, I'll say, you know, prepare for it and expect it and, and like get them in early, get as many failures as you yes. can in early because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, um, I hadn't developed any muscle in that area. So I do, so exactly like you say, I just, I, I did let it define me and like, what a waste. I mean, I, I eventually came back to it and I'm so glad. And I think that, you know, anyone who is an artist of any description probably has that kind of pulse in them that it's going to come out at some stage. Like you've got to make space for that at some stage or else it'll eat you up. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad that it did, but I, I, I still think, gosh, those, those wasted years mm. in there as well. So these days, how do you view that kind of experience now? Like if, if you put yourself in something and you don't get it, how do you process that for yourself? That's such a good question. Um, the, the, the last one that I had it was actually um, in the middle of the kind of process of the mother fault. I, um, I lost the original publisher and had to go and kind of start start shipping it out again. And, um, I was in, you know, I was broken for a little bit. Like it was, it was rock bottom. I, I didn't, um, think that I would be able to look at the manuscript again. I was hurt and, um, yeah, felt a lot of self loathing, I think. Um, and what I realized during that period was that, um, I was going to do the damn thing anyway, <laughs> you know, like that. I, I think that I had got to a point where I was like, well, I don't care. I'm going to, you know, this, this book is kind of bigger than me sounds a, a bit wanky, but you know, in that sense where you're like, I've got to see this thing through to the end mm-hmm. uh, and, and see what it does. And so that was the thing in the end that, that got me through. And I think it's just layers, isn't it? Of rejection and failure along the way. I mean, you know, often, and you might be in the same position that, you know, people will say, oh yeah, but you, you're published. Like how could anything ever go wrong from here? Or you've got yeah. the thing, you know, you've already reached the goal or you've been able to perform there or do that. And, yeah. and you, I mean, the stakes just get higher in a sense and you just yeah. get rejected more publicly <laughs> with, with bigger stakes along the way. So yeah, well, yeah that, so but it's been a good, it, it's, it's been a good 
learning process for me, I think. And I just, I, I really do <laughs> wish that I just failed more and, and failed more often. Mm. Um, I think too, when you're younger, no one sort of teaches you how to, how to fail. Like no one, no one says, okay, now that, now that you've lost or they were better or someone thought they were better. What, how do you talk to yourself about that? Like, how do you do that? Like no one teaches it's you so that. true. So you sort of no. to just find your own way through and, and like, in both of our situations it takes a long time so you sort of think gosh if I had have done that earlier what could I have achieved you know in all that time and space instead of pushing things away you know yeah yeah I, I Is agree there any teachers listening teach that yeah to your kids? <laughs> teach your kids <laughs> how to fail and that's oh, I'm going on a tangent now but that's the thing too like are we so afraid of those emotions we don't want kids to lose we that's why we give them everyone gets a four trying sticker and everyone gets a yeah. board. And when we play past the past at kids parties, everybody has to get a lot yeah. and a wrapper, you know? So I know. And it's really to, hard. Everyone has to keep, everyone has to be happy all the time. Yeah. I think that the hardest thing too, do, do you find like sitting with um, your kids disappointment and mm. or, or those emotions that you can't fix, you know, something going on at school and you just have to have to, um, resist the impulse to try and fix it and make it and make it better all the time you know and to take the discomfort away because it's you know you do have to feel all those um <laughs> horrible emotions and get and get used to them yeah. because that's the thing if you don't have the opportunity to feel them you can never work through them so then all of a sudden yeah. you feel them and you go what's this i don't know what to do with this and yeah i don't know you deal with it in inappropriate ways like I don't know, eating too much or drinking or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All of the above. Oh my gosh. let's lead into your children tell us about your your family okay so I have um I have two daughters Gracie is my eldest she's 10 going on 11 kind of you know going on 19 uh and she is um fiery and amazing and then my youngest is Etta and she's eight uh also fiery and amazing um and <laughs> you know it, it feels very funny kind of uh talking about them at this point. I was actually really looking forward to being, you know, to, to doing this because the book that I wrote uh, is the last one is very much um, informed by <laughs> my experience of, of motherhood. Um, but you end up kind of packaging it in certain ways, like for, for the book world, you know, you package it in these kind of little sound bites. Um, and, and in fact, the girls think it's hilarious because they were around so much when I was doing promo for the book because we were all in lockdown yeah. and they, they got really cross a couple of times because they must have heard me say things like, you know, parenting's really hard and I didn't like it all the time. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true, you know, and I'm going to have to live with the fact that there's all these sound bites out in the world <laughs> of me talking about, you know, how kind of shit parenting has been at, at various times. Um, but they are they are glorious beings. We've just spent a lot of time together in the last 18 months. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, it's kind of, I never realized the, the joy of watching them go off to their independent things and all come back at the end of the day and be able to like, <laughs> we've all done different things for the day is a very new and strange experience that I think only parents who've lived through this kind of last 18 months really understand. Yeah. Um, like so they're, they're things, my two. Yeah. They've done things during the day that you don't know about. That would be nice. Yeah, change, wouldn't it? exactly. And we're all really, <laughs> really excited to tell each other about what we've done. <laughs> oh my goodness. So during that time, how, how did you manage to continue to do stuff during lockdown? Oh, we, you know, we didn't. I think we just, we just kept on failing beautifully. Um, when we first went in, so who even knows when that was, maybe March last year, um, I'm, I'm sitting here in this little studio that um, my darling partner built for me in the backyard and it was just finished like literally just finished the week before lockdown um, where of course he also moved home and had to kind of write, uh, do his work from home as well. Yeah. He's a psych nurse. So he was kind of out and about, but also doing a lot of his work here. So this saved us having this actual separate space because I used to work in the corner of the lounge room. Um, <laughs> so, so I actually don't think that we would have, survived at all had we not had this um and the other beautiful thing was that because um adam you know his workplace was really good and quite flexible so that he could do a lot of um the homeschooling stuff in the mornings and then go out you know we just kind of juggled it between each other uh and and the kids we live we live kind of on the outskirts of melbourne there's a lot of trees there's a big reserve behind us like I did feel extremely lucky that we had a bit more space around us and, and we did, you know, some of it, maybe the first two lockdowns <laughs> was really, some of it was really lovely. And I think we did do that stuff of going, okay, we can have a fire in the backyard on a Wednesday night. And, um, you know, I would walk with one of the girls in the morning before they started just to give them a bit of space away from each other. And we did really pay attention to, the flowers and the mushrooms and the birds and, you know, um, so, so for all that it was incredibly difficult and there's also quite a few kids in our street. Mm -hmm. Um, and we live in, you know, a, a little space where we could offer each other that support, um, with other families and, you know, playing in the street <laughs> and across driveways and things like that. So I think really, uh, we didn't, you know, I, I lost a fair bit of work, but, but was still able to, to carry on. You know, we weren't in a really difficult kind of um, position with our jobs and Adam kept his job. So for all those things, I think, you know, we were in incredibly, incredibly lucky. But also, as I said to all of my mates and all of our um, WhatsApp threads who had kids, you know, as we all kind of, I don't know, you know, we would all spiral down at certain points and just say, like, I can't, this, I cannot do it anymore. I can't. Um, yeah. Because it was never part of the deal that we signed up for, right? As parents <laughs> to, especially when then, especially when you've already sent them out into the world and off to school and, and the rest yeah. of it, like to suddenly have these big, curious, active social kids home with you all the time. And we're just, we're just not equipped to um, provide everything for them. Yeah, I don't that's it, think. Isn't it? Yeah. So it was partly that. Part of the, part of the deal. 
No. <laughs> Oh man! Look, hats off to you guys over there. Like we've we've had touch wood. We've had nothing as extreme as that. Um, so yeah, you guys were often in our thoughts over here. All the Melbourne people. It's just unreal what you've been through. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard, and to be able to maintain your creativity, maintain. Yeah, and I think the creativity. Health. You know, at times, and I've talked about this with a few um, friends in the writing world, you know, I was like, oh gosh, maybe I should just go and um, train, retrain. I'll, I'll retrain to be like a, a personal care attendant or, you know, like mm. it, there was that sense of like, um, what is the point of doing my art in, you know, in a burning world, uh, in, in a burning world, in a world that's collapsing. And um, so there, there was that pressure, um, but also the kind of, um, focus or deep work that I find I need to do creative work just wasn't there. You know, I couldn't, you, at any stage you knew you were going to be interrupted, mm -hmm. um, couldn't get purchase on any kind of thought to go deep on it. I am often need to go away or that's the way that I've done my kind of writing practice is that a few times a year, yeah. um, when it works, I'll go away for a few days, either with a writing group or on my own and, and go really deep on it. And, and that's yeah. where I find, um, you know, I have real breakthroughs. So to not have any of that, but also to not have any of that kind of friction of being out in the world, you yeah. know, and, and seeing people or, um, interacting with people or observing things or being able to go to the ocean or all the things that would normally um, fill me up so that I have some kind of something to give some output. Yeah. Whereas I felt like, what, what do I possibly have? I've yeah. been inside my house with my children, you know, worrying yeah. and that anxious, you know, that kind yeah. of being in lizard brain mode of um, at any stage, both the uncertainty, but also thinking, uh, am I supposed to panic now? How, how am I protecting yeah. my children, you know, and being yeah. fearful of other people for the first time yeah. um, was a very strange kind of thing. And I think yeah. it'll take a while for us all to um, get to the other side of that. Mm. Absolutely. It's sort of, I had a, a moment where I was going for a walk one day and all of a sudden I just thought, oh shit, has that person got COVID? Like I just started to panic and I felt myself sort of shiver and and I just sort of backed up and went home real quick. And I thought, this is a horrible thing to be thinking in yeah. that world. But it was like, and then every time you turn the telly on, everything on the radio, you just couldn't escape it. And it was just nice. disastrous. So that's when I basically came into my studio and started music, more music stuff. I just had to get out of the current world and go back into a different world. So you, you know. found, so you could do that. You could then put your energy into that space. Yeah, I basically had to, I used it as an escape. Yeah, basically, yeah. I just had to. And what I ended up doing was I, I looked, because I was listening to a lot of older music, I think, to take myself out of the current time space too. Yes, um, yes. So I started um, doing covers of, of older songs um, and I ended up releasing them all because it was like I created different versions of the songs, got different backings, got a piano player, changed the tempo, all this stuff. And it was sort of my way of looking back on it now. I don't think I realised at the time, but but making sure that things were different, that changing. I didn't like what was happening, so I was changing it in some way, you know. I love that. Yeah, it's really good. That's the first time I've actually articulated that out loud. That's really interesting. Oh, well, it's very okay. profound. But... <laughs> <laughs>
So um, you mentioned before about your mother fault novel. Now you write fiction. Is that I right? do. See, yeah. At school, I could never remember the difference. <laughs> I still struggle. I'm just an idiot. Yeah, fiction made fiction, up, which means it's made up. But you mentioned that your mothering role had a lot of influence over that. So, what yeah. sort of themes were you exploring in the book? And I apologise, I haven't read your books. No, I absolutely. Really rude to say that because I no, actually, that's... I'm not a very good reader. I'm, I don't like to sit still and read. That's my excuse. Isn't that terrible? No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, the 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 mother fault is a it's a kind of a thriller. It's set in the very near future, and um, it's about a woman, Mim, who's um, got two kids, Essie and Sam. And when the novel opens, her husband Ben has gone missing um, on an overseas mine site. And in this very near future, Australia, everyone has um, tracking chips uh, in their hands, but he's offline; they can't work out where he is. And uh, very quickly, she's told to stay where she is and not to investigate it any further. Um, and so she does, uh, and, and they threaten to take her so kids. <laughs> yeah, so she does, because they kind of threaten to take her kids away from her, uh, and she says, stuff this, I'm going to go and find him. And so she goes on the run. So she crosses Australia with the two kids and then gets on a yacht and um, and sails to Indonesia to try and search for him. So, you know, where the idea came from, my first book was historical fiction, so nothing at all in this kind of world, but... Um, when I finished Skylarking, I was kind of sitting with this idea of um, the kids at that stage, maybe Etta was like two and Gracie was four, I think. Um, and I was deep in that bit, that those trenches where you're like, wow, um, not at school yet. So you're doing that kind of childcare, kinder, you know, crazy run every day is no more than kind of two hour lots of, of anything. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and still that period where it's just really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really hard. You haven't, I hadn't kind of totally, I'd had this moment when the book came out of um, kind of re, re-identifying as, as, as a writer and wow, I'm a professional out in this world, but also then I just come home and uh, it's just, you know, back to packing snacks and feeling guilty about them not being organic and the rest of it. And, um, <laughs> and so there was that stress. There was that kind of, um, huge amount of feelings, both positive feelings. I adore these kids. I will do anything for these kids. I'll kill for these kids at the same time as sometimes wanting to run away. So there was those feelings that I had. And at the same time, it was very deep in the, um, political kind of, um, craziness of the asylum seeker debate and uh, which of course we haven't at all fixed or done anything good about in this country. And so, I, I was kind of like having that daily thing of the news of watching particularly women who were, you know, crossing oceans in really unsafe ways to try and make their kids safe at the same time going, oh, 
I just want to run away from my kids. Like how, how are these two, um, how can I reconcile these feelings? Yeah. So for that reason, you know, over time, I realized that I wanted to write about a woman, you know, on the run trying to kind of protect her kids, but also trying to make sense of who she is and what she's allowed to want now that she's a mother. And is she allowed to want the things that she used to want? Um, she, you know, she has a kind of a crazy affair with an ex-lover on the boat in, um, in the book. Um, not a, not a real spoiler because lots of people talk about it when they read the book and you know, it was that kind of thing. And people have got cross, like, like it's one of the things in the book that people are really cross about. Cause that I think when we, when we look at, mothers in fiction and, and mothers in general in society, we have all these expectations of how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to feel and um, what they're supposed to prioritize. Yeah. And if you kind of, um, you know, poke the bear, I suppose, and say, well, maybe this isn't what, what we want or, or what we always want. And maybe it's complicated. <laughs> you can get some big responses out of people. So, you know, that's what I, I, I kind of wrote in my, my feelings. I also, you know, there's a kind of thread of, um, it's not named, but postpartum depression, which I think I probably had, but never really, um, understood, um, the first time around with my first, with my first daughter. Yeah. So everything, all of the feelings, all of the feelings I kind of composted into the book. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find, um, that was a way of you, of your dealing with that stuff? Like you used that as a way to, to work through things? Yeah, I, I do think so. I think I was so compelled at that point to write about the um, motherhood ex- experience and and in a way where I really wanted Mim to be kind of this superhero figure. And in fact, beautifully, a couple of reviewers have kind of commented that, you know, like she's the kind of Jack Reacher of, <laughs> you know, she's this like mum version of Jack yeah. Reacher. And I love that. I love that because it was about saying, um, you know, I definitely don't have any answers in there, but, but being able to talk about it and being able to, um, look at this idea that instead of, instead of what I feel like there's some pressure to do, which is to say, oh, okay, I'm a mum now. And so now I do things in a, in a mum way. Like I erase this kind of, um, version of myself that was there before, which it, it just seems so crazy, but I think to a, a level we're all compelled to do that a little bit like, okay, you know, now we do things this way. And, and it was great to be able to examine this, this feeling of going, oh no, I am still that young version of myself too. As part of it, I, I, I went on a yacht. I'd never been on a yacht before. And I, I crewed, I volunteered to crew on a yacht, um, from Darwin to, to Indonesia in a race. And wow. like, it was, it was crazy. It was one of the craziest things I've ever done. And it was incredible. And part of what was incredible about it is that it was, um, scary, you know, and, and I, I reached new levels of fear. And when I was underneath, you know, at one night in my cabin, um, before when I came off the late shift and thinking we're going, you know, the, this boat's going to tip over, which of course that, that's not what happens, but you know, yeah. like you think yeah. I'm going to die in this boat and that's going to be ridiculous. And my daughters are going to think, Oh, mum was doing this stupid research for a stupid book. And she drowned <laughs> in the middle of the team or C. Um, but when I got to Ambon as well, I, um, got to travel around a bit. I stayed there for a few extra days and on my own, 
mm. like traveling on my own. Like I hadn't, you know, kind of really ever, but also I remembered that my 19 year old self who was a backpacker, who, who could make a decision on the corner about which way they were going to go and not reach consensus with an entire family about what they wanted to eat or what snack oh, they wanted to, you yeah. know, it was remembering that kind of, um, that kind of sense of myself, which yeah. I think, um, was powerful. Oh, that's incredible. That's, that is so good. And that's when you had your, uh, sorted affair. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the boat. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> that, that part wasn't true. <laughs> joking, joking, joking. is so cool because um what you're saying about society's expectations of what a mother should be i feel like that is that that's what seems to drive the mum guilt i think it's like you you see or you do a post on your socials or whatever or you see someone else's and there's all these comments and you think oh christ what are we supposed to be doing then are we supposed to be spending time with the kids are we not supposed to be spending time are we supposed to be going and getting our hair done without them? like it's all this constant yes. judgment yeah yeah how do you think yeah, about I, that stuff? Uh, I think, you know, I actually had a, a gorgeous, um, gorgeous dinner last night with, with very old friends, um, that I went to school with and, you know, as always, as we talk about work and life and, um, our marriages and our kids, you know, we were commenting and we've all just, we're in the, the years of all turning 40, um, that we've just reached a part where we and excuse the language, you can put a language warning on it, have no fucks left to give. <laughs> and, you know, but but we were commenting like how that's been a slow process and that in all those early years, like all those things, am I packing the right snacks? How many cakes should I bake for the cake stall? Should I be on the kinder committee? Should I, you know, how are we, how are we approaching this way of parenting the kids? Like mm -hmm. just constant um, self judgment, um, constant comparison. Yeah. Uh, and then additionally, if you're a creative, <laughs> so you've got all that world over there. And then if you're a creative, you've also got the, like, um, how much of myself can I give to my parenting and how much of myself can I, can I keep over for my art and how selfish I was just rereading, um, this amazing, article by Rufy Thorpe, which I'll send through to you. It's called Mother Writer Monster Made. And it was something that I was a real touchstone for me while I was writing the book. And it's about um, her kind of really grappling with this idea of, um, I think it's Jenny Offal who says about being an art monster, like, you know, that, that, that there's this sense that throughout history, you know, all of the, you know, the old white male writers, like they just sat up in their studios or whatever their attics writing while they had a wife to do everything else. They didn't see their children. They could, they could spend all of their energy, all of their intellectual space, all of it on, on doing their work. And I don't, I don't want to do that. Like I, I, I do want to um, kind of 
be involved and go down and see the carols at lunchtime and do those things. Like I feel very lucky that yeah. it's worked out in a way that I do get to be present, but also sometimes I do not. Sometimes I want to go away for two weeks yes. and work on my book and forget, honestly, forget for a minute that I have children because I think part of it is that, that enormous part of our brain, which is constantly, constantly with the kids somewhere you know, worrying about uh, just ticking over slightly, you know, have they got swimming today? Have they got that bag? Oh, that present that I need to get, you know, and then, and then the bigger things, are they happy? Have we made the right decision? Should we send them to an alternative school? Should, you know, all of the things yeah. that yeah. just wind around in your head all the time. And sometimes I think, wow, if I, uh, what could I do with that space? You know, what could I do with that space? And I think I had the most, I had the, beautiful kind of opportunity to interview Helen Garner for our oh, podcast. I'm glad you brought that a up. A couple of I was weeks back. To bring that up. Yeah. Oh, well, it was incredible, but you know what I had I you know, I've read her for so long and I I asked her about um why she hasn't had to answer the motherhood questions so much. I mean, she talks about motherhood in her journals particularly, but I was kind of wondering whether it was just my age that that she did get asked that, you know, maybe when she first published Monkey Group. And she says this most glorious thing about, um, you know, when she had her daughter, who's about to turn 50, so that gives you a, a sense, or, or who's a bit older than 50, I think. Um, she said, we didn't have a choice. Like, it wasn't a decision to make. We just had kids. There was no anxiety about it. There was no uh, thinking that it was a choice. And she's, she tells this beautiful story about, um, you know, for better or for worse, that basically she kind of um, – strode out into life and she she told her daughter to you know to kind of keep up and she and she you know typical Ghana way says I don't know if that was the right way to do it but that's how I could do it and I and and she acknowledges also that there's just an an incredibly different level of anxiety around even the decision to have children now which um has made it all the more complicated I think yeah, yeah. because everything is a, a, a decision and you're so conscious about um what am I saying yes to what am I taking away from my kids should I just be sitting here kind of um being around for them or should I go out and do the thing that I really want to do which takes me away from them but mm. you know maybe in 20 years they're going to say gee mum really did what she loved you know yeah. that's what you have to kind of hope right you. <laughs> they'll be in therapy talking about us <laughs> exactly exactly we can't I mean we can't do it right you know I, we, there's ways that we can um I suppose try and mitigate against failing in really bad ways every day for them but I I have got better we talked about failure before I've also got better at realizing that um you know I'm gonna stuff this gig up this parenting gig up constantly constantly I'll, I'll stuff it up and and being able to say that to the kids as well, you know, maybe is yeah. is one way of getting through it. You're listening to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. You mentioned earlier how girls had heard you say comments like that while you're at home doing your, your, your book launch. Um is it important to you that they actually see that you are going out and doing stuff? I don't want to say you're not just being a mum because there's no yeah. being a mum. Of it's course. See where I'm heading with that. Yeah, no, it really is. And, you know, the, the first time that that was truly validating. So I um, went on mat leave um, from at that stage I was working in this, at the State Library doing education there and 
I went on mat leave and um, that's when I realized, I think I said before, you know, when Gracie was born, I just felt this extraordinary urge to write again. And mm. it kind of came at me in different ways. I tried to join a local writing group. It didn't work then, you know, and not until Etta was born, did I really go, okay, that's it. I'm, go I'm going back to uni. I'm going to do it. Mm. And um, which led to some of the first kind of games that the kids played when they were, you know, doing imaginary play were um, picking up laptop bags and going to playing going to uni. Oh. And I thought, I remember thinking, oh, this is a good thing, like, you know, like that they are seeing me do this, um, that it's this kind of crazy working life that I have, but they're, you know, inc incredibly proud of it. Um, they like Googling me. They think that's really fun. Oh, that's um, cool. <laughs> but, you know, and so they like that part of it. On the other hand, it, you know, at some point they will, maybe they will read the mother fault and that's terrifying. Like, I think I will feel really unskinned mm. by that process because I, you know, it has, um, it, it is really re revealing of the fact that, um, sometimes you don't want to have to be both. You don't want to have to be, um, mother and artist and friend and you know yeah. partner and all of those things you just like just give me some space just to do one thing um yeah. but but I also think I've tried to be really open the kids have seen me at rock bottom the kids have seen me on the days where I've had to close the door and have a cry and say just let me <laughs> have a cry in here you know I need I need time out yeah. um and for better or for worse that's the, the kind of way that we've run with it so hopefully they will, you know, they will see that as an honest part, but I am conscious too that, uh, you know, I haven't written memoir and I, I think it must be really hard for people who are writing nonfiction and, um, kind of living, living their lives and their children's stories far more openly. Like I'm conscious of that. And I, I do read, um, with, with close interest, how people navigate talking about their kids when they start to um, have a, a profile in terms of what their art does as well. I think mm. that's just hard. I don't have any answers to that yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You'd have to be so considerate of them, of them. Yeah, exactly. To be so aware of. Yeah. It could be quite hurtful for them, you know. It's, yeah. And as they start them. to talk mm. about, you know, I think one of the things that happened which was really funny in the process of it took me four years to write the mother fault is that you know gracie gracie grew up and and i and i so i changed the um one of the characters essie she actually grew older i made her older in the course of it because it suddenly became so fascinating talking with my daughter you know like when they get to that part where they start you know you start having really interesting kind of conversations and they're curious and um and they've kind of leveled up in the intellectual stakes so much so that you think, well, I'm net, whoa, <laughs> what have we got ourselves into here? This is a real little human who yeah. has like really big thoughts about the world. Um, so, you know, that's interesting as well to me. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. And I love their, um, perspective, perspective on the world and the way that they can so throw you with their truthiness sometimes. Oh gosh. Yeah. I work in childcare. Um, that's, that's my day job. And uh, oh, I see I you get never, those. I'll never tire of the amazing things children say. <laughs> oh, just, some really funny things, but things that yes. just makes you stop and think and go, oh my gosh, you're seeing the world in such a different way to me. And it's wonderful. You know, it makes yeah. you pull yourself back of seeing this whole, you know, where they're oblivious of so much stuff. And it's wonderful. Yeah. I'd love to be able to be like that again. 
and yeah. not be overawed by all these big things that are happening and just be concentrating on this uh this crayon's not not the crayon the the pen's yeah. being sharpened that is, that is yes. the biggest thing in my world right now i yes. need to get that sharpener or i'm not going to be able to do what i need to do you know just yeah oh just living so simply and Oh, and know. in the moment, in the yes, moment, not worrying about, yeah. not worrying about, you know, the possible trials that will come when they're teenagers. Yes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I love yeah. that. They're doing it right it, then. It's beautiful. I love that. that huge desire and drive that you had to get back into your writing when um, when Gracie was a baby, was that mm. some of that born from um, sort of finding your, I don't want to say reclaiming your identity, but perhaps trying to discover who you were at that time? Like I'm a mum That's now. really interesting. What does that mean for pre-mum Kate? Yeah, it was, you know, I had I had done these little tiny baby steps to stepping away from what I thought was expected of me. So, you know, I thought that my parents were both teachers um, while I'd attempted to do this little kind of attempted at the, at the end of school to do this something else, you know, media, TV, whatever, it, it didn't work out. And I thought, oh, well, you know, what you do as a as a, a good member of society is that you work your nine to five job and you, it's actually more than nine to five because they were teachers. So it was kind of, you know, all consuming yeah. and you do that really well and passionately. And then you, um, you know, you have a partner and you get married and, and um, buy a house and, you know, go camping and all the things like I was really like, this is what you do with your life. And um, when I, I had this opportunity to go to the state library to work for um, on a secondment kind of thing, just for, for three months. And suddenly I was like, Oh wow. Like, the world is not just like a school, you know, like the, there are other people and they have a better life, work-life balance than I do, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'd started unhooking myself a little bit from what I thought was expected of me. Mm -hmm. um, and then the shock of being a, a parent and, you know, it was, we had, we were 10 days late. Gracie was breached. I had to have an emergency season. Like it was not, it wasn't how we planned it at all. So, um, it was all a bit of a shock. And in the first six months after Gracie's birth, I lost two grandparents, both who, who, whom I was really close to. So it was kind of just a, a bit of a shit show. Yeah. And I think I found the capacity to write things down, um, kind of, healing or like that there was this enormous force you know that visceral kind of thing when you when the kids are born you kind of leaking no one tells you how much you're gonna leak like you're just kind of wet for I don't know for six months maybe longer you know like and how much uh and the sleep deprivation and all of those the the just the craziness of the world that you're in as well as that feeling of being affronted that no one told you it was going to be like this, even though yes. they attempted to, yes. <laughs> but no one yes. really, no one really kind of told you. And then I think being out in the world, I, I clearly remember 
um, you know, I had that, I had a year's worth of maternity leave and I remember like, I don't know, going to the park or something and meeting a friend for a coffee on a Wednesday lunchtime and going like, Wednesday lunchtime is a time in the world where people are not just at their work. Like people are out there in the world and they're doing other things. And I know it sounds really crazy now, but I really did have to deprogram myself to what I thought life was meant to be. And even in that first year after um, Skylarky and, you know, and, and since the mother faults come out, it's still a daily practice of going, this is um, a, a kind of a life that I've made for myself that makes me incredibly happy and fulfilled. And it does not meet, it does not check all the boxes, like doesn't check the financial box, doesn't check the, you know, a lot of the boxes. And yet um, I am so much kind of mentally healthier and happier than I was when I was killing myself trying to, you know, be a teacher. A lot of the writing of um, The Mother Fault is about geology as well. I did all of this incredible kind of reading about geology. And I think it is that, um, you know, you kind of, they shift you off, they shift the axis, you know, you kind of, it's kind of like, and start you spinning in a, in a different kind of direction, I think, having having the kids. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that they make you better or wiser or anything like that because I know plenty of incredible humans who <laughs> are not parents and and they are incredibly wise and amazing and um, have kind of lived the full breadth of experience um, but I think in terms of what it does for you personally is that it kind of just yeah kicks you off where you are and you have to look at you have to look at everything differently and and, and in that act of um, shifting I think I think Matt Lieb or, or you know, if you're lucky enough to have it, or at least that space where you're kind of recovering from actually um, birthing or, or having a newborn in any way, that because it, it so dramatically changes your day to day that you are forced to, to reconsider things. And I often think um, it's a real shame, like especially for friends who, um, particularly the men who didn't necessarily get any um, parental leave or things like that, like life just kind of rolled on. And that, that what I'm so grateful for is the big kind of abrupt shift that made me go, okay, well, how do I want this to be? You know, how do I want my life to be? I've now got, I've now got a little human on the outside of me who's also my responsibility. Um, but how do I want our life to look? Yeah. And without that, you probably would never have come to that realization. You would have just kept rolling yeah. along, doing your thing. Rolling along. Exactly. I just wanted to touch on you mentioned about the mother fault having like the geology and stuff the title of the book is that mm. i'll give you my take on it yeah 
because I really loved English at school and I loved um, analysing things. And to this yeah. day, my sister, it drives her nuts when we watch movies. I'm always picking up the... <laughs> He's I the love show. that. She's in the light. He's higher than her. She's All this sort of, you know. So basically, this is my take on it. And I have to, I'll, I'll say again, I haven't read it, so I can't say... But is That's it, okay. Uh, to me, it's two things, right? It's the fault as in fault, as in the mother does things wrong, whatever. You know, and no one's perfect, finding your way, whatever. And then the fault of like the geology, like the fault lines of the things that move the earth sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Absolutely perfect. And it's not um, it's not a technical one. Someone who did a read for me at one stage was like, "Is this a technical term? Like the the greatest you know fault line?" And I said, "No, ah. I, I totally just made it up." But in yeah. terms of, but yes, absolutely refers to that. But the funniest thing was that when I um kind of got to it um and and it is that one of those beautiful things where I I came up with the title myself because often you know often publicity and you know the the publisher will do a title for you because the one that you've got is shocking but um so I did come up with it myself and I called my mum and I was like mum I've got it I think I've got the title of calling it the mother fault and she said oh you can't call it that and I said what why and she said oh because it's always the mother's fault like people associate those words together all the time and I was like yeah I know like that's the point and so many people have said booksellers particularly that like um, women will comment on it, whether or not they buy it. And sometimes they do, but they will comment on the phrasing of it because, um, and it, and it provokes a lot of feelings. And I think that, I think, you know, um, we love to a fault, um, as well as all of that guilt stuff about, um, you know, Mim in the book, you know, is, is kind of like running across the country, you know, escaping from the government, these shady government forces who are looking after her, looking after the kids. And she's still worrying like, oh, maybe we've had takeaway too much this week. Like, uh, yeah. you know, you know, because yeah. that is, yeah. that is how the brain works, you know, that you're, you're in absolute kind of danger mode. And, and the other thing is that, you know, when, when I won't give away the ending in the book, the part that I often um, read out too, is that um, towards the end of the book, when Mim kind of works out what her husband's been up to and, she's really cross. And, uh, she says, you know, I would have liked to be a hero too, but I was at school pickup, you know, and that, that in the end is <laughs> what happens to us, you know, like that is in a nutshell. That is literally in a nutshell. <laughs> that is <Yeah>. brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You know, that you, you could do anything. You could, you could be anything, you, you know, that this, the possibility of, of what we have available to us. And of course, part of that is also being a parent and, and that the possibilities that are opened up with that and the kinds of highs of it are extraordinary, but also the day-to-day -day logistics of it are just shit. You know, they, they just really, and I'm, I'm sure some people enjoy it, but I do not. And I know lots of people who do not. Um, and they take up time and brain space and energy and, and if there was one thing that I think kind of delicious thing that came out of COVID and lockdowns is this tendency, which I hope we can try and hold on to, which is to say, okay, maybe we can just have a fire in the backyard on Wednesday night and not do 18 after school activities and go to every party and say yes to everything. Maybe we can just, you know, hold on to um, a little bit less to mm. think that it, it's enough the way that, that we're doing things. And then we have space for those other big, crazy, wild possibilities um, that we want for ourselves or, or for our families. Yeah. Um, that would be a nice thing, oh. I think.
I totally, totally agree with that. I can recommend a um, book, which I just listened to on as an audio book. Uh, it's called 4,000 Weeks. Um, Oliver Berkman, I think his name is. And the premise is if we live to 80, that's what we've got. 4,000 weeks. That's only, you know, 4,000 Saturday nights, 4,000 Sunday mornings. And it was kind of like, it was very confronting when I first started listening to it. But his premise is you, you know, it's limited. It's finite our time here. So you got to be, when you can't do everything. And we think we've been fed this lie that we can, particularly women, (laughs) particularly in the last 20 years. You can do everything. You can have your career. You can have your kids. You can look amazing. Your house can look amazing. You can see all your friends. You can have a great marriage. Like, bullshit. No, you can't. Yeah. You actually just cannot. Who are these people that are doing this? Yeah. Where are they? it's impossible it, it, it is impossible and and i the, you know the book i keep saying to my partner you know like it's changed my life he's like you're only two days in mate like post finishing the book so just maybe it hasn't changed your life yet but i feel like it's got the capacity to if i keep reminding myself like you know well i'm 40 now like that's it i'm halfway through my four thousand weeks like come on what are you going to do with the rest of them you know make them count I don't know if this is a secret or not, but does Mim get another book about her? Does she does she ever come back? You know what? She um not at this stage. Lots of people were super duper interested in that because it le- it's left on a bit of a um cliffhanger. Oh, is hopefully, it? um hopefully, yeah. I hadn't I hadn't planned there to be, and hopefully, um yeah. I can't I can't make any large announcements about such things, but hopefully, um hopefully she gets a, a turn to you know be adapted into screen in some way and, um, be oh, seen that exciting. way. Yes. But oh. not that I would say anything about that, okay. no, <laughs> but hopefully that's something that happens. <laughs> I love these podcasts because I find out things about other um, artistic pursuits that I know nothing about so tell me how when you write a book do you then have to go you have to go find someone to publish it for you you have to send it off to lots of people and stuff well essentially what work how it works that that's essentially how it works one of the um one of the great lucky (laughs) breaks of my life is that when I was um starting the course that I did the writing course at RMIT um I started writing Skylarking as part of you know, a a subject there, a novel subject. And I actually managed to get that picked up by a publisher before it was finished. So it's very rare that that happens and and that happened, um, which was incredible. And since then I've got an agent. So in, in Australia in particular, um, definitely in overseas, um, the best thing to do is to find a literary agent if one can, um, you know, I mean, the other thing about it that's been so strange is, you kind of think, oh yeah, I've got my first book published. So now I'm just going to get books published. Like that's the way it rolls. And of course that doesn't happen either. Like every single one is still, you know, has to be great. It has to be ready to be published. It has, there has to be space in the market. There has to be all those other, you know, everything has to kind of um, align and combine. So that's why so often, you know, writers in this country 
earn on average $12,000 a year from their writing. Like it's ridiculous. I mean, there's a few outliers, but that's why so often they've got all the other hustles that they have, whether or not they're in writing, like any artists in this country, in fact, because we're so ridiculously and chronically underfunded and undervalued. Um, But, you know, that's why having this little bit of time where it has been, um, I have been able to do it because I, I got an advance for the book. So I have been able to just focus on writing and feel validated that I don't also have to take on every teaching gig and every workshop gig, you know, and mm-hmm. because um, that's, that's really hard. And that's the other side of the, you know, being an art monster or, you know, being creative is that then you've got to also manage your own business about that and or everything that that comes along with that which i think often too is not instinctively where an artist's strengths might be yeah yeah (laughs) and so yeah it's very hard you know and we want to collaborate and we and we want to do all the things and we want to be excited and it's really hard to kind of insert yourself in there and say actually but hang on am i being paid for this or hang on how many hours is this going to take me um one of the things that one of my gangs do of women all of we're all writers we're all parents um and at certain times we've written each other's like hardcore emails for each other yeah. where we're saying no actually we need to be paid more than that or this is how much i'm charging because yep. it's still so instinctively hard to do it yourself i'm getting better at it but it's still really hard to do it to do it yourself mm-hmm. um yeah, so the business side of it is just an an absolute mess. But I must say that having my incredible agent on board now, um, and she's amazing, and she just no bullshit, and she does the the bits that I both don't understand, <laughs> and have and have no energy for, and she lets me, and which protects the time that I have then to write, which is oh, what's so amazing. Absolutely, no, oh, that's awesome. So because you've written. Because, like you said about getting your advance, is that because you have? Sorry, if I'm hoping I'm not being too personal. Like, no, 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 go ask. This is what we should I'm, be I'm doing. We should really be talking about the business stuff. Yeah, I'm really. Interested. Yeah. Um. So, did you have to present the idea for the book, and then they went? So, yeah, we really like this. So we're going to give you the funds to give you the time and space to create it. Yeah. What often happens is that you'll get um. So my agent um took the motherfold out and took it to various publishers, and then the publishers all kind of um you know, I was in the fortunate spot to kind of have a, a number of bids in from different publishers. So then you kind of talk about it and you talk to everyone and see who's a good fit. Um, and who's, let's be very frank, who's got the most money. Um, and, um, at that stage they'll often say, so people will often get contracted in a two book deal or a three book deal. So they'll say, what have you got next? And hilariously we were off, we were doing a trip around Australia to visit our mates who live up in the Kimberley. So we taken three, you know, eight weeks off, put the camper trailer on. Um, we were way out in this remote community, had very little um, phone reception. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to like pitch my new book, which I hadn't written a word of. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, the second book is it's kind of a little bit of this. It's kind of a little bit of that. So that's often what happens is that you kind of pitch a concept or um, – and, and some people really don't like being contracted. Like some writers will say, oh, the pressure of having a contract hanging over my head for the next book is too much. I can't write like that. Um I'm a bit of a, a deadline person, so I kind of like it. Having said that, I've already missed my deadline, so you know that, that's that's the way things go too. So I wanted to ask you about your podcast. 
yes the first time it's funny <laughs> do you get this a lot when uh, people google it they think it's about something else <laughs> yes 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 we do we do and in fact there is another one which is about which came after us oh. <laughs> and of course now we've now it's hilarious because it's we're four we're about to start our fifth season next year and We've also now, you know, I'm up to publishing my third book. Catherine's publishing her second book. So the premise at the start was that it was about the first time you publish a book. Yeah. Um, and because Catherine was about to publish hers. So we chat to each other um, yeah. about all the things, you know, what do you do for a launch? The kinds of questions you're asking as well, like how do you find an agent? You know, what's it meant to cost? Yeah. Um, as well as interviewing Australian writers about their kind of the first time they published a book um, and what they've learned since, which is, which has been nice. Yeah, cool. So are you going to change the show to the third time that you've had? Yeah, I know. We were like the first and subsequent times. Um, now we've got such a brand that um, I feel like we can't change it. But this year, uh, next year, we're actually going to, um, we're hoping to focus. we got some really kind of, I talked to um, Maggie Shipstead, a US writer who was shortlisted for the Booker Prize um, this year and, you know, getting Helen Garner to speak, you know, we've kind of gone from begging our friends in the first season to like, will yeah. you talk to us to now, yeah. you know, all, all these books arrive every day. The publishers are, you, we get pitches all the time. We can't possibly fit on everyone who, you know, we, we, we've been asked to have. Yeah. Um, so it's this real switch, but you know, a bit like you, I think I just, I'm, I'm so obsessed and curious about how other people do the thing that they do and how they yeah. manage to make it work. And I'm like a bower bird. And so I, so I steal little bits of everyone's processes and ideas. And, and I just think it's incredibly, it's incredibly interesting. It's incredibly interesting to have those conversations with people. Um, and, and also I, I don't think I realized Catherine actually was at an event the other night and she messaged me afterwards and she said, Oh, people really listen to us. Like people really came up and said, like, it, it's really helpful. Or I really, you know, oh, your voice is so familiar. And I think the beauty now of podcasting, and you would know this, is that it feels, you know, you forget that however many people are going to download it later. And you just, mm. you're very, you're sitting often now in your own home and you're very intimate and you're very frank. <laughs> and yeah. then you forget sometimes what you've said when someone comes up to you a random, and, oh, I loved what you said about this, about your marriage. And I'm like, shit, did I say that? <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I've, I've become, um, yeah, I've become really addicted to it. I mean, my dream, my dream is that I get to write books mm -hmm. and then someone on the ABC gives me a show and I can just talk to creatives about what they do, uh -huh. you know, and someone can pay me to do it. That That's the, yeah. that's the dream really. Yeah. Let's be frank, Alison. That is my, that's my dream. That's what I want I to happen. That. that is so good. I love that. Anyone listening for the ABC? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give us both a show. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, I found the same thing. I, I found that basically why I started this is that I needed to find out other people's opinions on how, not necessarily how to do the physical stuff because everyone's so different in their art, different, you know, requirements or whatever, but how to change my perception about stuff because I was finding I was getting really challenged being interrupted and, but that kind of thing, like, you know, having to having to look at things in a different way and needing to for my own sake because or else I was just going to have to stop creating because I just was yep. getting too wound up and too you know almost resentful that sounds horrible yes. to say um but yeah so 
I've really enjoyed hearing how other people do it, how how they think about things, yes, um, and how they how they still meet their needs, but not at the expense of their own mothering. Yeah. Life. So yeah, I've just abs- I love it. I think it's the range too, don't you think, Alison? That like I um. Have you read The Divided Heart? Oh, I interviewed. Yes, um, you have. You've, yes, yes, of course, you did. You interviewed yeah. Rachel. That's how yeah. I knew about your podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, like that was such a profound book for me. I got that really early because someone recommended it to me. Um, and then since then I've read lots of um, – Anne Enright, who's a writer, her extraordinary book on um, being a mother and um, – Oh, there's there's heaps, there's heaps, and and often you're drawn to those ones too. Like I read all of them for, for people who aren't parents as well. Um, but I think it's the range of going, wow, this person did it like that, mm. and then this person did it like that. It's it's so permission giving when you go, okay, I can be away from my children and do my work that way, or I can do it amidst the interruptions and I can write a chapter on my phone while I'm doing, you know, there's no right way to do it. And I think in the end, sometimes I worry about my obsession with reading about other people's process, but then I'm like, no, because the more you read, the more expansive your idea of what it can be is. Mm. And yeah, so I, I'm totally there with you. It's, it's made my practice so much better. Which is why it's so important that, you know, and so amazing and such a generous kind of act that you, that you do this podcast too, I think, because it is, it's that talking about the unspoken or which, which, you know, there were, there were people, um, yeah, there were definitely people who, who let me know, I'll always remember a gorgeous friend, Amy, who messaged maybe on day three and said, you might start crying today. Um, and that's okay. And I have since then, I have always sent that message to people, you know, to, to yeah. because I was like, that was so incredibly helpful that mm. she told me that, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and then, and, and, and I think that there is this act of, and you have to know when to say it because you don't want to burst that gorgeous pregnant, first time pregnancy bubble either yeah. for people. But um, the sharing of stories and the way that women in particular share stories, um, mm what a lifeline that is when it starts to happen. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think the rise of social media of this showing this perfection, this, you know, Mm. this beautiful staged photo, like we're talking about the Christmas tree, you know. Yeah. Is that really reality, you know, or have you got that Christmas tree hidden in a different room where no one can touch it? Yeah, exactly. It's just why can't we just be honest with each other and just get it all out? Like don't be afraid to... To share, and I think um, that would help so much, not just in like what we've talked about, but also like the whole mental health thing. Like actually saying, "Yeah, I had a lot of trouble, um, and now I'm going to use that to help everybody else." Um, yeah, it's just so powerful, and it's not Incredibly. something to be ashamed of and scared of and embarrassed about. You know, it's it's life yeah. and it's reality, and the more we talk about it, the better. I don't know. Absolutely, I get a bit precious. I think sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and scared, scared, yeah. scared of how, scared of what people will think. You know you what? Know. I can say this as a forty-something-year-old, but there's no way I would have said this twenty years ago. You know, yeah. Like we're talking right back at the beginning about this judgment. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think everybody has to start thinking like a forty-year-old woman. Yes, be a better yes. Place. The world will be a better place. <laughs> Utterly. <laughs> oh, that's. Great.
let's go. So basically, I was going to ask um, what you've got coming up. <laughs> I've actually got a couple of, um, I've got some great workshops that I'm teaching in the new year in 2022. And the first one is a kind of a um, kicking off your creative year. So it's for Writers Victoria. I'll send you through the details, but it's a full day online workshop. So people can do it from wherever they are in Australia. And um, we're looking at, it's for emerging um, or, or mid, I think it can be for anyone really, but just looking at ways to kind of um, really kick off the year going, how am I going to make space for my creative work in whatever kind of situation that I'm in, that my, my work and my family is in um, and how I'm going to do that. So that is, that's really fun. Um, and yeah, people, I mean, people can, I'm, I try and keep up to date on socials. I'm having a bit, we're having our three weeks at the beach offline, which I'm just so excited and thrilled about. Really? Um, so January is always off, but yeah, podcast, new podcast season coming up, um, with the first time and then lots of, lots of little events, um, in the new year as well. So, and then, the book eventually <laughs> Yay! Oh, well, you know what now that now that i've spoken to you i'm going to read your books and that's oh, a big thing for me to it. say because i'm not oh I'm i not love that at all. well and you know if you're if you are into audiobooks i can highly recommend although i haven't listened to it myself because it's just too weird and hard to do but um the gorgeous claudia carvin oh, um read the mother fault um oh, for awesome. audible yeah or audiobook or whatever and yeah. um I got to chat to her quite a bit. She's really into it. And um, yeah. everyone who I know who's read it that way uh, has loved it. So that might be a way that um, works for you. Mm, that is definitely something I can do. Thank you. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Oh, dear. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for giving oh, me time this morning. So, so lovely speaking to you, Alison. I feel like it's like been a debrief as well as a, <laughs> a podcast. It's, been very it's like just a little therapy session. Absolutely. Thank you. And Digby, it was lovely to meet you too. Are you in the middle of your first publishing experience? long to get a deal or already been there and want to know how others experienced it. Maybe you're a writer, a reader, a lover of Australian fiction. This podcast is for you. Here's the deal. Catherine's first book, The Helpline, is hitting shelves in Australia very soon and she has got some questions. Like, how do I plan a launch party? What should I expect? What do you do in a green room if I get invited to a festival? Will I get invited to a festival? What if I get invited to a festival and no one shows up? Should I get my day job? Is my life going to change? What does it feel like to cop a bad review? Do I need to get my nails done to match my book cover? Should I be on Twitter more? And even though my first book, Skylarking, came out a couple of years ago, and I can give Catherine some advice, Already has lots about our experiences that are vastly different. So we thought we'd cast the net a little wider and ask some other Australian writers about their first time. I just ticked that box novel and started this incredible adventure. It's great to have a deadline to work towards. You know, there's this tendency to obviously procrastinate or not even procrastinate, just keep reworking and reworking and never really deciding that it's finished, never pressing send. And I distinctly remember the moment I got the idea for what would become the first novel. That moment is vivid in my mind. It's one of those things, I had a choice, I write the story down or I go completely mad. That first shortlisting that you get is just this amazing validation. And for some reason, 
present, it tends to happen when you're at your lowest point and it always just kind of buoys you up and allows you to keep going. There's three parts to being an artist of any sort. There's talent, there's hard work, and the third one everyone forgets is luck. If you luck, the lucky chance comes and you're not ready for your lucky chance, you're not going to make it either. In each episode, we'll ask a writer to come clean on all the feels and the logistics of their first time and we'll hone in on advice on a particular aspect of the publishing process. I'll also ask Catherine to update us on where she's at with her own adventure into the world of a debut novelist, whether it's chatting to her editor, getting her socials sorted, or speaking to an audience of booksellers. We are taking a bit of a risk here. We want to take you behind the scenes of the hype and the insta-deliciousness of the debut experience and find out all the lows along with the highs. We're asking our guests to be candid and to give us the warts and all of how it feels. And we don't know how it's going to play out for Catherine. Will her book end up on billboards at the airport? Will she hit the coveted top 10 on release? Will Hollywood come knocking? Or will, as one writer attests, the experience all be a little anticlimactic? Subscribe via iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our website, thefirsttimepodcast.com or connect with us via Twitter and Instagram at thefirsttimepod. And let us know about your first time and the questions you want answered. We look forward to getting into your ears. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum. A little postscript to this episode. Since I chatted to Kate, I read her book, The Mother Fault, and it was absolutely amazing. It was um, a stunning book. I enjoyed it so much. I actually started off listening to it, narrated by Claudia Carvin uh, through Audible. And then I thought, no, come on, Alison, you can do better than that. So I I purchased the novel and I, I read it and I absolutely loved it. And so much of what we spoke about in this podcast today comes out in the book. And there were so many moments where I read a line and I thought, I know exactly where that's coming from. Uh, so I would highly recommend this book to anybody who's interested, slightly interested in reading it. Please do. You will love it. And there definitely has to be a sequel. We're going to have to start a petition for Kate to write a sequel because it, when you've read this, you will go, hang it, hey, what? You can't leave it like this. Come on. Bravo, Kate. Congratulations. Well done. Beautiful story, beautifully written, and absolutely loved it. 